Servus and greetings from Vienna. My name is Anita Posch. Thank you for listening to Bitcoin und Co., my podcast that's introducing the philosophy, ideas and people behind Bitcoin. You will find additional information and links that are mentioned in this episode in the episode description on the website bitcoincopodcast.com or in your podcast player. I would like to hear from you, so you either leave a comment or you will also find a link to send me a voice message. For weekly updates, subscribe to my newsletter at anitaposch.com slash newsletter. Before we start, a short message from my sponsors. You're looking for a solution to store Bitcoin the safe and easy way? The Card Wallet is a high-secure way for storing Bitcoin offline, developed by Coinfinity and the Austrian State Printing House. The Card Wallet is a professional cold storage solution made with high-quality security materials and tamper-proof features that prevent the manipulation of the card. If you want to know more or buy the Card Wallet, go to www.cardwallet.com. Com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Bitcoin und Co. podcast. Today I am honored to be able to talk with Andreas M. Antonopoulos. If you haven't heard of him yet and are interested in learning about Bitcoin and open blockchains, his videos and books are the best way to start. I'm always asking my interview partners for recommendations and almost every one of them mentions Andreas' works. Hello, Andreas, and thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Anita. So today at the VIA Developers Conference, at your uh, keynote, I heard something new. Oh, good. Uh, you, you built your first business with 15. You started a pirate radio station. Yes, in that's, Greece. that's correct. You broadcasted out of your childhood bedroom. At first, yes, but eventually we built a full studio and got sponsors and advertisers. And the funny thing was, this was right after the post-dictatorship Greece. There were only four stations on the radio, and they were Greek Army Radio, Greek Navy Radio, Greek Air Force Radio, and Greek Public Radio. And they played patriotic music, folk songs, and classical music. And none of the kids wanted to listen to any of that. And we played top billboard rock and roll. <laughs> so we were very successful. <laughs> no competition. Yeah, cool. So now I know also why you are so a good, such a good speaker, because you trained like 30 years. Yes, speaking. that's true. I yeah. was actually teaching and, and, um, and also using microphones and speaking publicly from a very young age. Mm -hmm. So, Andreas, about one year ago, we recorded our first interview. I think everyone should listen to it because it's timeless. It hasn't lost any of its relevance in the last month. And now, one year later, I'm sure many things have changed. What are the main developments or shifts you have seen in Bitcoin being technical or in terms of political and economical aspects in the last year? So, a lot of things are changing. I think after... Um After the big rise in price we had in 2017, a lot more people heard about Bitcoin, but not always for the right reasons. Um, and inevitably, the people who got very excited about the money possibility, uh, they leave when the money possibility goes away. 
But the people who stay are those who grasp the importance of this technology. And we build on that foundation every cycle, and they become what we build on next time. And I'm, I'm really excited by how quickly this technology has developed. I think the biggest change from a year ago in technology terms has been the tremendous growth and success of the Lightning Network which is a secondary layer that allows for extremely fast secure payments on top of Bitcoin, um, leveraging Bitcoin's security. And it's, it changes the game completely. Uh, and I think we're going to see, and still very early stages, very difficult to use, um, not many interfaces, but the pace of development has been tremendous. Mm -hmm. You're traveling a lot. In which countries do you see the most interest in Bitcoin or maybe like people on your meetups and Patreon site? I think the probably the the country that has the most vibrant community today is Argentina. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because Argentina has um, a highly literate uh, uh, population with high levels of education and access to international markets and um, speaking both Spanish and English, many people. And um, yet at the same time, they have a tremendously difficult government situation and their currency has now suffered uh, almost every 15 years, catastrophic um, inflation. They're now going through another round of catastrophic inflation. Their currency lost more than 40% of its value in one year, uh, which to you know someone trying to build a future for their family you lose 40% of your uh, buying capacity in a year that's tremendously damaging so they have a fundamental need for bitcoin and other communities they have interest they may have technological curiosity like in san francisco it's cool you know. but but in in argentina it's more than that and there's also a lot of startups and a lot of very very talented developers Do you think that in Africa or South Africa? Because I don't think that you are there very often. I've been to South Africa, uh, but again, not very often. Um, it's still mostly something that happens among the companies and the affluent. Uh, it's not affecting the lives. Now, then again, uh, at least in the country of South Africa, um, the RAND isn't in crisis like other currencies. So maybe the need is not so acute. Um, they do have problems with government corruption, of course. Uh, but the interesting thing is most of the vibrancy in Africa happens from Central and Eastern Africa. So uh, Tanzania, Kenya, Ghana, uh, where they already have very, very sophisticated mobile money with M-Pesa, which uh, started, uh, I believe, in Kenya. And... Um, therefore, the ability to connect that to the concept of Bitcoin is, is fairly easy. So there's more activity happening there, but uh, not as much as in South America. There's always a lot of discussion and also negativity about Bitcoin's state of development and its, quote, original, unquote, idea. Mm -hmm. Should it be a store of value or should it be a means of exchange? There's a lot of arguing about that. Can Bitcoin be, be all of that and uncensorable at the same time? Yes, I think it can be all of that, um, but not necessarily within the same layer of software and not necessarily without making some changes. I think the 
the difference is that most of the emphasis has so far been on scaling. And I think that um, more important emphasis needs to be placed on privacy and fungibility on the base layer. But these differences of opinion at the end of the day are resolved by um, the marketplace of ideas, meaning that uh, anybody who has a difference of opinion can present their own perspective and build their own code and then test it in the marketplace of ideas. And perhaps one will win, perhaps the other. We can't really decide that in advance. We can't say this is what it should be because should doesn't turn into a market. Uh, the market decides on itself. Now, there's a lot of argument in this space that um, different ideas face censorship, which I find a bit, uh, and I, I'm very much opposed to, to censorship. And I think many of the forums uh, where these discussions are happening most strongly tend to emphasize a few extreme voices over the vast majority of the community who don't engage in these forums. And I meet on a daily basis those who are new and those who are not interested in playing these games. But at the end of the day, when Bitcoin succeeded in the first 10 years, it did so in the face of incredible censorship, incredible disbelief, incredible cynicism. And yet, the power of the technology itself proved its worth, no matter what people said. Uh, magic internet money, drug dealer money, it will never work. It can't work. So I think it's funny that uh, um, people who are promote, promoting other approaches say that the reason they're not succeeding is because their opinion is not being heard enough. That didn't seem to affect Bitcoin in the beginning. If your ideas have value, prove it in the marketplace. I think that's the ultimate result. Because I think in the first like one and a half years, nobody really... I mean, Satoshi was mining alone, I think, or something. So yes, and then the, the first uh, two or three years, the it was mostly negative responses to it from the technologists with extreme skepticism that this could even work. And from the people who had political issues, it was, um, you know, something that shouldn't work because it was a bad. But, you know, at the end of the day, one of the things I like about the way things have developed is... Um, I was initially afraid of forks. I thought that forks would dilute our ability to focus. I think they've done the opposite. I think it was the arguments that were diluting our ability to focus. And the forks actually give everybody a platform to continue the debate in the marketplace. So now, when there's a massive disagreement, both sides get to explore the future on different sides of the fork. So everybody gets their own chain. Every minority opinion can get their own chain. Every majority opinion can get their own chain. And we can all experiment. And the best part is you can hold currency in all of them. <laughs> in fact, you do when they fork. Yeah. Um, and wait for the market to tell you which is the correct answer or use the one that suits your applications the best. Uh, so in a way, I think it's relieved pressure over the arguments. Uh, you can have your Bitcoin, I can have my Bitcoin. And in the end, what is Bitcoin is whatever you decide it is based on the rules you want to follow. Yeah, and it also has been proven that forks work. I they mean, work, they, yeah. absolutely. They work to diffuse the arguments, but also to give people a way to show their work. Can you please describe the different building blocks of Bitcoin and how they come into play to build this neutral, public, transparent, uncensorable, immutable, open financial infrastructure? For instance, mining, technical consensus, game theory and incentives. How do those work together? 
Because to me, it sometimes seems like a big connected organism. If yes. you change your thing here, it changes on the other side. Can you please explain that in, in, in words for newbies? Yes, it's really funny because the industry has focused on one of the technologies, blockchain, and use that to describe the entire system. And, and blockchain is one component. In fact, it's not even the most interesting component of uh, Bitcoin. And it wasn't originally invented by Satoshi Nakamoto. One of the interesting things about Bitcoin is that it merged as synthesis. It's not uh, an original invention. Uh, all of its parts existed before. Um, what was original was the particular synthesis of all of these parts into this recipe um, that created Bitcoin. Blockchains existed before. Uh, proof of work existed before. It was invented by other people. Uh, Merkle trees, digital signatures, uh, cryptographic hashes, peer-to-peer uh, -peer networks like BitTorrent. All of these technologies existed independently. The real magic in Bitcoin is the ability to achieve consensus in a decentralized manner using proof of work across a peer-to-peer -peer network um, without anybody being in control. What's unique is not the blockchain where you write the data. It's not the network where you propagate the information. These things existed before. It's not even the hashing and digital signatures, the cryptographic elements. What's unique is the ability to reach consensus by using proof of work uh, such that there is a fair and ultimately decentralized means of control over who gets to write to the blockchain. And that is based on fundamental game theory. Ultimately, Bitcoin is a game-theoretical security system. And the game theory is the idea that every participant has to invest or stake energy that is their bond. It's their guarantee that they will do the security work correctly, because if they don't, they lose that guarantee. So they have to deposit this guarantee in the form of using energy. And they demonstrate that deposit by solving a proof-of-work equation, if you like, or algorithm, which can be verified very easily by anyone so that they know that the person who presented this has put the energy in. That creates the right set of incentives and disincentives for the system to work in a very decentralized manner. And that's the magic. It's the decentralization of consensus. But you just mentioned the energy consumption. That's one of the reasons why many people oppose Bitcoin and say it's not good because uh, it's damaging the climate. Mm -hmm. What do you say to this? I mean, what's the answer? So um, I think it misunderstands both the function and the operation of the system. For one thing, there is a vast difference between energy production and energy consumption. The idea that energy consumption is damaging to the climate is not accurate from a scientific perspective. If you use a solar panel to consume the energy of the sun that is already hitting every square centimeter of the surface of this planet, which is an enormous amount of energy that goes unharnessed completely, um, that doesn't actually damage climate. In fact, if you use the energy from a solar panel or the energy from geothermal energy or wind energy or hydro energy, and you use that energy to mine Bitcoin, what it does is it allows you to create a smoother return on investment on the infrastructure that you invested in alternative energy, which increases 
the investment in alternative energy, uh, thereby decreasing the economic cost of solar panels, of wind turbines and things like that, and further increases that infrastructure build. So in fact, because Bitcoin is, is location independent, it doesn't have to be near population centers that produce the most carbon dioxide. It doesn't have to be connected to traditional or classical or hydrocarbon-based energy. In fact, it's connected to the energy that is the least expensive, the least transportable. And generally, that is alternative energy that is being produced at a time when there isn't enough demand, therefore waste energy, uh, or is produced too far from the locations of demand because you don't have a distribution network. From an economic perspective, therefore, Bitcoin stimulates the development of alternative energy in a way that no other system does. And at the same time, people who make this argument fail to see the fact that economic activity in itself requires a system of value and payments. And traditionally, we do that with two infrastructures. We do that either with cash. Uh, it costs billions of dollars to print, destroy, circulate, clean, remove, uh, and move from place to place physical cash. And it takes place in the digital centers of banks and credit cards. And those take enormous amounts of energy to house all of the people who work on the systems, systems that are automated and replaced by Bitcoin, to run all of the computers that are checking for fraud, which are replaced by the mechanism of Bitcoin. So we've got to look at what this replaces. It replaces something that is already very, very energy intensive, but that energy use is hidden. And it replaces it from energy intensive and hidden energy use that happens in the center of our cities, where it produces the greatest carbon dioxide footprint, and it moves that to the most uh, remote areas and to the most alternative and renewable forms of energy. In the end, this is a more environmentally friendly technology than our traditional payments. And once you understand it from that perspective, this should be the choice of environmentalists. I have a personal opinion that is even goes one step further, and that is that one of the downsides of our centralized financial system is that it allows governments, through the imposition of uh, hidden taxation through inflation, to finance enormous uh, military adventures and wars. And this is a phenomenon that is very closely tied to the ability to finance debt through inflation. And we can see that the rate of investment into the war machines of big nations after they left the gold standard exploded. And so our current system of money finances war on a massive scale. And that is the most environmentally destructive human activity we have. So if with Bitcoin, we take away the ability for governments to finance war through inflation, this is uh, an even bigger gift to humanity. But can they not also take Bitcoin then and use it for military interventions? Yes, they can. But the amount of Bitcoin that's available is fixed. So they can't print Bitcoin out of nothing. Mm. The, the biggest reason we have a massive increase in war spending is because governments figured out that they could uh, print enormous amounts of, of cash, which leads to inflation, which leads to your cash having less value. So it's a way for of basically taking extra taxation from the population and putting everybody into debt to finance war without having to pass any laws, without having to have any debate. It's a hidden tax mm. and it's very destructive. Mm. But then another argument against Bitcoin comes into play most of the times. It's like the in, in equal 
wealth distribution we have at the moment in Bitcoin because some people have bought or have earned in a way a lot of Bitcoins in the first yes. 10 years and the poor people will not be able to afford it. What do you say about that? I think the poor people will be able to afford it because one of the things that Bitcoin does is it allows people to participate in economic activity that they're currently excluded from. So the idea that um, unequal distribution is a problem that's caused by the currency, I think, is mistaken. Unequal distribution of income and more specifically, the emergence of a statistical phenomenon called Pareto distribution or power load distribution is something that is evidenced everywhere in nature. The fattest pig that can push away the other pigs and eat more gets fatter. The biggest cities get bigger. The wealthiest countries get wealthier. Um, and this is something even that you see the biggest ant colonies get bigger. <laughs> this is a power law. It's an emergence of nature. And it's something that is an effect of society, not an effect of currency. Currency is just the place where we see this symptom, but it's a societal phenomenon. So to solve that, we need tools within society. And the tools that civilized people use to deal with this is taxation and redistribution of income. And a lot of people agree or disagree as to whether this is a good or a bad thing. That's really a political question. But the blaming the currency that simply reveals the underlying social practices, I think, is wrong. We can solve these issues, but we can't solve them by fiddling with the currency. Um, we have to solve them by having open and honest political debates and making decisions as a whole, as a society, how we deal with inequality. This is not a problem that just happens in Bitcoin. Mm. And many people say at the moment you can't use Bitcoin because of its high volatility. Yeah, that's correct. It's actually very difficult to use Bitcoin in places where volatility of money is low, like uh, Western developed nations. But, you know, in places where they need it the most, the volatility they have in their native currencies is greater than that of Bitcoin. And it's mostly negative volatility. It's declining value. Uh, whereas Bitcoin, while it has volatility, the, the majority of the volatility has actually been on the upside historically. So um, it's a difficult question. And the, the primary reason Bitcoin is volatile and all of these new digital currencies are volatile is because they're too small. So what happens is movements in the market where people can bring a lot of money to bear, um, big banks, wealthy people, etc. Uh, they can essentially move the market individually by making large purchases or large sales. The smaller Bitcoin is, the easier it is to push around. The bigger it gets, the harder it gets to push around. So over time, it's actually getting less volatile as it gets bigger. But to be honest, I don't understand why the volatility is getting lower when there's more money in it. Because if I have, for instance, like 25,000 Bitcoin and I sell it today, the price goes down. Yes. But these 25,000 Bitcoin will be of a higher value than in 10 or 20 years. And it also will move. Doesn't it grow together? It is very unlikely that you will still hold the same amount of Bitcoin because, okay. you know, at the end of the day, and this has to do also with the unequal distribution, the people who got the Bitcoin early, the idea that they simply put that, park it and never use it is mistaken. What people do with money is they use it to invest in companies in order to create a return on investment. And that circulates it in the economy. And what it does is it creates innovation in the technology. It creates jobs for other people. I can speak from personal experience. And I, I think there's this misunderstanding that uh, this almost uh, Scrooge McDuck idea of having a very, very big room 
full of gold coins and then diving from a swimming pool, diving board and bathing in the coins like you bury it in your backyard. That, that's not how wealth works. The way wealth works in most cases is, yes, you might keep some on the side, but most people will invest their money in a, a variety of things they want to um, achieve or promote. Sometimes wasteful activities like buying nice things for themselves, buying Lamborghinis. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are some very, very uh, gifted people in Italy who make those Lamborghinis and they get paid as yeah. a result. Uh, we've got to realize that just because someone has Bitcoin today doesn't mean they're going to keep it for tomorrow. And in fact, as the price goes up and the system gets more um, open and gets adopted by more people, that wealth basically gets distributed through economic activity. I'll tell you my experience. I bought Bitcoin at less than $3. I bought hundreds, like more than 500 Bitcoin at almost $2 each. And, you know, people will assume, therefore, that I am a multi-multi-millionaire. Of course not. Let me tell you how it works in real life. You buy 500 Bitcoins at $2 each. You've never seen it go above $2. Um, it seems like it may not go anywhere. So when it goes to 8 you've made the greatest investment of your life. It's four times greater. You never thought it would go to $8. What do you do? I'll tell you what I did. I sold my 500 Bitcoin at $8. I had a party and I had a couple thousand spared dollars mm -hmm. as a result of that. And then when it went up to 16, I was kicking myself. So I bought some more. But then when it went up to 30, I sold it again because I thought I'd made another great investment decision. And again, and again. A lot of people have done that. So, you know, good luck holding. It's not so easy. <laughs> yeah. It sounds easy. Everybody is saying now, wow, all these people, they are rich now. I should have done it. Yeah, you should have. But you also would have had the luck and the skills to hold it that long. And, and also, how is that different from now? Like you look yeah. at it now and you say, okay, it's 6,500 euros. If you... Do you have a crystal ball? Where is it going next? Because, you know, when when it was at $10, that to me seemed like an enormous amount of money because it had started, if you remember, at a thousandth of a penny. So to go to $10, like the first three years just to get to dollar parity was an amazing achievement. When people look back 25 years from now, if the price of Bitcoin is $800,000 and you tell them in my youth it was six and a half thousand. They'll say you're an idiot for not buying at least one yeah. and holding it. Yeah. And now you'd be a millionaire. But people don't think like that. Mm. Um, they think it's too late. People thought it was too late when it was 10. They're like, oh, it's done its thing. It's never going to go above 10. Yeah. And they also say, I want to buy a whole Bitcoin. I'm yes. not okay with just a smaller fraction because I don't have the money at the moment. But they can also buy a small fraction and hold well, it. Well, yeah, and, and again, keep in mind, I don't want to give people the, the idea that this should be treated as an investment. I think what you should really think about is, can you participate in this economy and make it part of your life? Can you learn from the education? But more importantly, do something sensible. And for me, sensible means take a per percentage of your salary, two or three percent, and save it in a number of different assets so it's diversified. And does that mean put five dollars into Bitcoin every week? Put ten? Maybe. Maybe you put ten into that and you put ten in the stock market and you put, uh, you know, ten in a savings account. Great. So you put thirty dollars a week aside. If you don't have thirty, you do that with five dollars a week. 
or your equivalent currency. Mm. Um, you don't have to go and treat this as if it's a huge opportunity. You can treat it as a learning experience. Yeah, as an experiment. And this is not investment advice, I guess. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> yeah. not. No. Um, now I have a question from one of my readers or followers on Twitter from Staticus. He's writing, I'm no longer worried about technical failure of Bitcoin, but what if it just stays a tiny niche with the mainstream simply not caring about privacy and free speech money? I think that's a very strong possibility and that's an excellent question. That's not failure, however. A tiny niche currency that actually gives the people who care about privacy and need it Uh, and who care about cross-border transactions and need that kind of capability is something extremely useful for the same reason that having a corner of the internet that's free, even though most people want to use Facebook, um, gave rise to Bitcoin and other things that we uh, can enjoy, uh, those who appreciate freedom. So I, a niche Bitcoin isn't failure. Uh, in fact, if a niche Bitcoin can actually help the people who currently have no access to banking, that's a huge success. Um, I do think most of the failure modes for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies today are not technical, they're social and political. And I think one of the risks we run is not just creating a niche technology, but even more dangerous is the possibility of creating a niche culture and that culture being uh, radical or toxic towards the rest of mainstream. So if we, if we close our culture and... Uh, narrow it and expect people to conform to certain political opinions or certain ideals, and anybody who is not part of that group is rejected or is chased away or attacked, uh, we will fail the system through cultural and political failure. I think there are very many different political and economical and whatever opinions in Bitcoin. But Absolutely. One goal, one goal is Bitcoin. There are some uh, very loud opinions that make it seem that it might be one-sided. But I can tell you, I meet people from every side of the political spectrum who still see the value of a system that connects people across the globe without agreeing on the broader politics. People from left, far left, to center, right, far right, authoritarians, independent-minded people, all kinds of people may see in Bitcoin, they project their own politics. Okay, thank you. Now we're coming to an end. I know you read a lot. Yes. What are you reading at the moment? What would you recommend? So the book I'm reading uh, right now is called Infinite Powers. And you might think this is like a superhero one. Um, it's by author Stephen Strogatz. How Calculus Reveals the Secrets of the Universe. And it's about calculus. So differential equations, derivatives, integration. So it's mathematical. Mm -hmm. It's about the impact that that particular branch of mathematics from the beginning with Newton and Leibniz, but even going further back, the concept of infinity from Archimedes and Zeno, all the way to the modern technologies, things like CAT scans, MRIs, radar, lasers, uh, the internet that um, have come out of this very interesting twist in mathematics that embraces the infinite, chops it into tiny little pieces, and then puts those pieces together to get to answers we couldn't have before. It's a fascinating book because it connects mathematics that are fairly hard to understand, but explains very easily and connects it to everyday experience. I, I'm really enjoying it. Okay, very interesting. I will put it in the show notes, of course. What are your next plans, like working-wise? And uh, do you write a new book or, or end 
Where can people follow you and find you? Um, so A-A-N-T-O-N-O-P, Antonop is my handle on Twitter. Antonop.com is my website. Antonop is my channel on YouTube. You can find all of my work. It's available for free. It's available online under Creative Commons licenses and translated in multiple languages. I, I hope you use it to learn something. It's open and people can actually do things with it, like, for example, create their own work in addition to it. Recently, you helped me complete with two other translators and the Internet of Money in German, das Internet des Geldes. And uh, that's a wonderful uh, result, bringing it to, to the German people. I was speaking this morning with the translator for Internet of Money 1, Niklas, uh, and he was telling me this experience he had of uh, trying to explain it in a barbershop to a woman who only spoke German and didn't understand any of the English. And that was the moment he had the epiphany that we need to have this in, in German also. And so this, this has been a fantastic experience. So in any case, back to this, I'm going to be writing more books. I've actually signed contracts for my next book. I'm not going to be announcing it until the 28th of August. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I'm really excited about this. It's going to be a, a collaboration and uh, looking forward to it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for your work and uh, have a good European tour. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. What did you think of the interview? Did it bring you greater understanding of Bitcoin and its people? If yes, and if you want to support my show, please subscribe to the podcast in your player, leave some stars and share, 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 share on social media. Feel free to contact me on Twitter, LinkedIn and YouTube or send me a voice message via the link on the episode page. Goodbye from Vienna. Auf Wiederhören. Music. Start with Yes. Dedicate Beats. Idea, content and production, yours truly, Anita Posch. <laughs>